When I was in my mid-twenties, the primary mentor in my life was a man named Dave Simmons. Dave was a man who owned the camp where my soon-to-be wife and I worked for for three years after college. But Dave had a a fascinating and in a lot of ways a a tragic childhood. Uh, Dave's dad was stationed at Fort Riley in the 40s. His his dad was a, a major in the Army, but he was a very harsh and demanding man. And uh, an incident early in Dave's life kind of illustrates the, the point. One Christmas, they were, they were here at Fort Riley, and even though Dave was too young to read, uh, his dad bought him a bike, unassembled, and said, Dave, if you want to ride that bike, you have to put it together. And so his dad stood there and watched. Dave couldn't read the instruction. He stood there and watched, struggled, frustrated, trying to put this bike together. Eventually, he melts in tears. And what does his dad do? His dad shoves him out of the way and says, get away, stupid. I knew you couldn't do it. And that was his nickname for Dave, Stoop, which was short for stupid. And not surprisingly, uh, Dave was not a particularly respectful kid toward his dad or obedient kid toward his dad. And he he took every opportunity he could to kind of get back at his dad. And the crowning revenge was when Dave was graduated from high school. He was a kind of an all-star football player. And he had full scholarship offers from his dad's two favorite schools, West Point and LSU. And his dad just would have swelled with pride if he'd have gone to either of those schools. So what does Dave do? He accepts an offer from Georgia Tech. Why? Because it's 1,500 miles away from his dad. When I knew Dave, uh, Dave had had accomplished all sorts of things. He had been an All-American linebacker at Georgia Tech. He had played pro football for the Dallas Cowboys, the uh, St. Louis Cardinals, and the New Orleans Saints. Uh, Dave had built his youth camp from the ground up, literally from the ground up. Dave had written books. Dave had spoken to crowds all across the world. He was a very brilliant, accomplished man. And yet Dave, at the core, had a hard time not believing that he was stupid, that his father's voice was in his head uh, because of what his father thought about him and the way he, his attitude towards Dave shaped not only the way he, he, Dave related to his dad, but how he thought about himself. And there's something very similar that happens in the spiritual realm. What you think your heavenly father thinks about you shapes not only the way you relate to him, it also shapes what you think about yourself. And this issue is very relevant for us as we study 1 Peter. Last week we started our study in 1 Peter, and it's relevant because later in chapter 1, Peter is going to tell us as followers of Christ to be obedient children. He's going to say, if you address as father the one who judges impartially every person's work, and so he's going to have us think as children of our Heavenly Father. And so if you think that your Heavenly Father is gracious and, and lavishly uh, extravagant in the way that he, he deals with you, then you'll respond to those commands differently than if you think your Heavenly Father is harsh and demanding. And so what you think your Father thinks about you will shape how you relate to him, how, you, how you, you think about yourself. Therefore, before Peter commands us to be obedient children, he gives us this profound, rich description of God's great affection toward us. And that's what we're going to consider today in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12. 
If you were with us last week, we we just looked at the first two verses, and you remember that Peter addresses believers as exiles. If you're a follower of Christ, your citizenship is in heaven, you're living in exile here in this world. This world is not your home. You're living in a place where you don't really belong. Since your citizenship is in heaven, your father is your heavenly father, then you are loyal to him. And if your loyalty to God the Father and to Jesus and to the Holy Spirit makes you at odds with the society, so be it. You're in good company. You're in the company of David and the prophets, Jesus himself and the apostles. And so we live as exiles in this world. And as we do, we have to know our Father's heart. If you don't know your Father's heart, you will misunderstand and you will misdiagnose all sorts of things that happen to you in this life. And so today's passage makes three grand statements that reveal our Father's heart. We've got them in the the bulletin. They're, They're longer statements. You can follow along there if you'd like. But the first is this, is that God has welcomed us into his family in a way that is more comprehensive and generous than we can fathom. He really has. If you know that God has welcomed you into into his family in this generous, lavish way, that makes all the difference how you hear his demands. And by the way, there are many. He's not a a permissive father. He's not a distant father. He's going to make many demands upon us as sons and daughters of his. And so he begins with doxology. He begins with a burst of praise to God. And if this passage sounds familiar, it's because that's what we just read on the screen, okay? Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so warning, this is a, this is a very dense passage, but we're going to work our way through it and hopefully uh, the, the richness of it and some of the, the nuance of it will inform how we think about God and how we relate to him. And so first in verse three, uh, Peter refers to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you read the gospels, Jesus commonly referred to God as his heavenly father. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you also have a right to call, call God your father. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And so he says, according to his great mercy, there's nothing stingy, there's nothing tentative about the mercy of God. It's according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And surely Peter got that, that, that phrase from Jesus himself. In John 3, we have this account of, of Jesus' uh, conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just as you were born physically into this world, into a biological family, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are born spiritually into God's family. And Peter stresses that God caused us to be born again. He makes those who believe his very sons and daughters. And so if you're a follower of Christ, if you're in God's family, it's not by chance. You didn't slide in even when God, when God wasn't looking. No, he caused you to be born again, to become a child or daughter of his. 
And then Peter qualifies that God has caused us to be born again. He qualifies it in three primary ways. First, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A working definition of hope, if you have hope, you have this confident expectation about the future. If you have a hope, you're confident, you're expectant that God will do what he says in the future. And so if your hope is dead, you look to the future and it is bleak. If your hope is alive, if it's living, you are confident that God will do what he says. Our hope is living because our Savior is living. If Jesus weren't alive, we would not have a live hope. But uh, uh, our hope is alive because our Savior is alive. So even if you're living in exile, even if your life is tough right now, you can be confident that you will make it home safely. Verse 4. He says, uh, secondly, that we are born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. In biblical times, an inheritance was, was most commonly tied to land. And so your, your inheritance was wrapped up in the land that your, your family, your father owned. So if you were sent off in exile, what happened to your land? your inheritance. It was gone. And so it's very likely, as you mentioned last week, that some of the people Peter wrote to had, had literally been exiled from Rome. So if land was their inheritance, it was gone. They, it, it was wiped out. And so they, they knew firsthand the hopelessness of losing an earthly inheritance. And so Peter says, when you're born into God's family, God keeps an inheritance for you in heaven that is untouchable. He says it won't decay, it cannot be polluted, it will not fade with time. And this inheritance is everything you could want spiritually and personally. This inheritance involves this face-to-face fellowship with Jesus himself. It includes a place in the new heaven and the new earth. God will give you as part of this inheritance a glorified body, just like the one that Jesus had when he was raised from the dead. And so we've been given a hope, we have this inheritance. When you're born from above, third, we learn in verse 5 that in the meantime, while we're living in exile between now and the inheritance, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And so our faith and God's protection go hand in hand. God protects us as we trust in him as we we hold on to him in faith. And so when Christ returns, he says our full salvation, including our inheritance, will be revealed. And so if you want this, this, a theological summary, this overview of your heavenly father's heart, this is it. God has welcomed us into his family in a way that's more comprehensive, more generous than we can fathom. So when you trust in Jesus, you are born again into God's family. You have the status a full status of a son or a daughter. And uh, our, our souls are being guarded by God as we trust him through this life while we're in exile. And when Christ is revealed, when Christ, Christ returns, we will receive an inheritance that makes any inheritance in this world pale by comparison. We're going to see this throughout 1 Peter, really throughout the Bible. And so it's like, uh, think about it this way. If, if there's something exciting that's going to happen this afternoon in your life, 
Chances are this morning you're thinking about it. It's pressing back into the present and, and you're anticipating it and it's, you're, you're even enjoying it ahead of time. The book of 1 Peter in the New Testament has us look beyond the grave and see that something amazing awaits us. And instead of escapism or triumphalism or any of those things, it's supposed to make us anticipate what's happening. And that reality is supposed to press back in and affect the way we live our lives in this world. And as we'll see, ultimately, that reality should help us persevere. And so God wants us to know that he has welcomed us into his family in a comprehensive, lavish way. But what about living in exile? What about all the suffering we see in the world? What about all the suffering in your life right now? What about all the trials that the people you love are going through? Is Peter suggesting that we should just stay positive and and just gut it out because one day things are going to be, you know, wonderful? Uh, No, actually, Peter's going to say you should look at those trials very carefully you, could, you should suffer very deliberately understanding what God is doing, understanding that suffering is valuable both now and then, okay? We're talking about living by faith. You can't see this. This is what's been revealed. Now, what we see in the next, the next uh, block of verses, verses 6 through 9, that really, again, reveals the heart of our Father is that the trials of this life do not quench our joy. Rather, They prove the genuineness of our faith, and these trials will result in praise, glory, and honor. And Peter's probably referring to everything he's just explained when he wrote about being born again to a living hope, having this untouchable inheritance when he writes this. In this, in everything I've just explained, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I don't need to... I don't need to convince any of you here that this life is full of trials. And he calls it a little while, right? And you're saying 70, 80, 90 years. Doesn't seem like a little while. But from the vantage point of eternity, it's a little while. We're only here, we're like a vapor here on this earth. We're like the flower of the field that, that come and go. But for a little while, we, we experience these trials. We experience hardship, difficulties, related to marriage and parenting. We experience physical, emotional, mental difficulties and illness. We experience financial distress and poverty. And Peter will mention uh, some suffering that's unique to following Christ. He'll mention being reviled because of his name, having people insult you, mock you, simply because of your loyalty to Jesus Christ. And lest we misinterpret our trials, lest we think that, for example, this is God's displeasure or it's God's neglect. He wasn't paying attention when this trial slipped into my life. Peter is eager to explain in verse 7 that these trials are necessary to test and prove that our faith is genuine. It's easy to trust God when everything's going right, you know, when everything's great in your life and you experience all this prosperity in every realm of your life, God is so good. Your faith is tested when you experience trials and your circumstances are not good 
and your suffering and your experience, the dissonance of, of this world. You don't fit in. You're not an insider. That's when you find out whether or not your faith is genuine. And Peter writes that this type of faith that is proven to be genuine, it is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. And gold is one of the most precious commodities in Peter's day. But its preciousness pales in comparison to genuine faith. And Peter writes that that type of faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And I think he's talking about the praise and glory and honor that is ours at the return of Christ. Of course, Jesus receives all those things in ways that are far, far more than we do, but we share his glory and honor and even praise in a certain sense. We find that taught in various places. And so once again, Peter has us consider our time in exile, our time on earth, in light of our eventual rescue. This doesn't lead to, to escapism or anything of the sort. It leads to perseverance because faith tested by trials and found genuine will be rewarded. And rewards are a tricky thing to understand, but it's taught everywhere in the New Testament. Our faith is rewarded. What we do in this life is rewarded. When Jesus returns, nobody whose faith has been tested and proven faithful Nobody will regret a single sacrifice that he or she makes. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Anybody here seen Jesus and yet you love him? Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This passage reminds us of John 20 with, uh, when Peter was, uh, or when, when Thomas was absent, when the rest of the disciples saw the risen Lord. Thomas told him, he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see him, unless I put my finger and touch the, the wounds in his, his hand and in his side. And so when Thomas finally saw Jesus, Jesus made him this this generous offer. He said, everybody else believed because they saw me. So look and put your finger here and here. And we don't have recorded that, that Thomas actually did that. Thomas just had this expression of faith said, my Lord and my God. And in response to, to Thomas's declaration, Jesus said this, John twenty twenty nine. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Yes, just like all the other apostles. And he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The people that read originally, the original recipients of First Peter were in that category. You and I are in that category. And when I see people who've never seen Jesus, but they love him and they, they trust him and they rejoice in him, that's evidence, again, of a faith that has been refined and a faith that is mature. And what Peter's describing in, in these verses uh, is observable, and it needs to be experienced in community. We're supposed to see each other's faith that is proven genuine through trials. We're supposed to look at people who love Jesus and believe in Jesus and rejoice in him, even in the midst of hard things. And one of the things that helps me persevere is seeing the faith, seeing the love, seeing the joy of some of you who suffer terrible things, just hard things, and yet love God anyway. 
And so I think of people who've experienced great loss, who experienced the, the death of a spouse or the death of a child, and they love God anyway. They trust him. They don't shake their fists. They don't curse God. They trust God anyway. I've seen some of you experience financial hardship and financial setbacks and have joy anyway. I know, I know a man who's experienced uh, financial difficulties in his work, and yet he is genuinely fascinated at what God is teaching him through his trials. I see that and I go, now that's a different way to approach your trials. I've seen people share the gospel with family and friends only to be ridiculed, only to be mocked. And yet they keep worshiping Jesus. They keep having joy, keep having faith. We've got this, these recovery ministries here at Faith, Pure Desire, Grief Share, Divorce Care, Stephen Ministry. And the, these ministries are all led and staffed by people whose faith has been refined by trials. None of the people in these ministries would say, I've arrived, let me, tell, let me teach you how you should live your life. But these are people who would, would give firsthand accounts of how their faith has been tested, and it's been tested through trials, and it's been proven genuine. And so we have to have this in the body of Christ. We're, we're not islands. We need to see the genuine, the tested genuineness of each other's faith. Well, finally, something else that reveals the heart of our fathers in verses 10 through 12. Living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, those of us who live after Easter are more privileged than both prophets and angels. And this is an odd passage the first time you read it, but it's, it's really, really rich. And so even though his, his readers are living in exile, Peter wanted them to understand you're living in a time of privilege. You are living in a time of fulfillment. You're living spiritual realities that attract the attention of prophets and angels. And those are two superstars in the Bible, okay? Prophets and angels. So it says this in verses 10 to 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, these prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so prophets such as Isaiah, they prophesied about grace that they themselves didn't experience. They prophesied about grace that only people living after the death and resurrection of Christ would experience. And Peter said that they sought to know uh, what person or time uh, to which their prophecies referred. So they weren't trying to predict a date. So they wanted to discern just, just general, uh, general knowledge in terms of general circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So, for example, you read in Isaiah 53, Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant, and he says there that he would be pierced through for our transgressions. It says that he would be crushed for our iniquities. It says that he would justify the many. And so Peter suggests that Isaiah was intently interested in discerning. Was the suffering servant, was he coming in his lifetime or was he coming for subsequent generations? And if, if Isaiah discerned that, he could set his expectations accordingly. He could, could give wise counsel to people around him. We read in verse 12, it was revealed to them, people like Isaiah and Ezekiel, that they were serving not themselves, 
but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so prophets such as Isaiah, they weren't serving themselves, they were serving others. Even though Isaiah didn't live to experience the blessings of Isaiah 53, he recorded them so that we might have confirmation. And so we look back and we say, well, in Isaiah's day, they trusted God. They look forward to the time when the Messiah would come. So we're in an analogous situation. In our day, we look forward to the time when the Messiah returns and when he rescues us out of exile. And so even though we're living in exile, we are more privileged than the prophets. We're experiencing what they only anticipated. And I love the way he says it in verse 12. He says that the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So again, this, that's where God is, our Father who is in heaven. The Holy Spirit has sent from heaven, guided and, power, and empowered people to explain these things to us. And so if you have heard and believed the truth about Jesus, it wasn't just happenstance. Again, your Father in heaven sent his Holy Spirit to empower people to unveil and to, to explain these things that Isaiah talked about so that you can now be a person of privilege and, and live the, the fulfillment of all these things that Isaiah prophesied about. And then at the end of, of verse 12, Peter mentions that the things that have been announced to us, the truths of the gospel, are things into which angels long to look. Throughout the Bible, you see it. These angels have this interest in what's happening on earth. And so angels are created spiritual beings, okay? And so that they, they long to understand the, the working, the outworking of the gospel. And so the fact that angels long to peer into the things that we've experienced are further confirmation that we are privileged people, even though we're temporarily just for 80, 90 years, are living in exile. We're people of privilege in days of fulfillment. And let me remind you why all of this is important. If you don't understand your father's heart, if you don't understand his intention to you, how he's lavishly brought you into his family, how he wants you, He's got an inheritance for you. He's given you this hope, how he's going to guard you, how he's going to bring you home safely. If you don't understand your father's heart, you will not be inclined to obey him. You just won't. You won't be inclined to trust him. You won't be inclined to spend time with him. You'll misinterpret all sorts of things that happen during this life that is in exile. And I say this because this is, in a lot of ways, my, my own journey spiritually. You know, when I came to Christ, it was, uh, I was 20 years old. When I came to Christ, the idea of obeying rules, that made great sense to me. But the idea of obeying my Heavenly Father, that was an a, uh, empty concept for me, largely because of my relationship with my earthly father. I don't remember a single time when my dad made a demand of me. I don't remember a single time when I either did something or didn't do something else because that's what my dad wanted. We just didn't have that type of, of relationship. He was never mean. He was never unpleasant to me. He just wasn't really an a intimate part of, my, part of my, my life. 
And so um, I can't blame all my pathologies on my dad, okay? One time I did, but I don't anymore. But uh, I do find that I instinctively relate to my heavenly father the way I relate to, related to my earthly father. And a comment that was made at his funeral kind of illustrates the point. This was 1990 when he died. He and uh, and mom had divorced about three years earlier. Uh, I'd been a pastor here at Faith for just a a couple of years. But I heard my whole life how amazing my dad was, just people singing his praises. And that's what happened at his funeral. And one of his friends was up there giving a eulogy, uh, just talking about all these amazing things my dad did. And he summed it up by saying, Craig was always there for us. And I was sitting there thinking, so that's where he was. He was always there for them because he wasn't there for, for me. And I was cynical and I was bitter and, and all these, these different things. But uh, I just don't have an intuitive understanding of a relationship with a heavenly father, not one who makes demands on me anyway. I could sit in a room with a, a dad, but I, I don't know how to obey a heavenly father. That's why this passage we looked at today, it's, it's money. It's just rich for me because this tells me that any demand that God makes on me, and he makes many, he does, he just does. Any demand he makes on me flows from his heart of compassion and flows from his wisdom. Any trial that enters my life, it's not a mistake. It, it's something that God will use to prove the genuineness of my faith. And as my faith is tested and proven, somehow at the return of Christ, it's going to result in praise and glory and honor. And so I'm not a, I'm not a bother to God. I'm really not. I'm not an afterthought. God sent his Holy Spirit to empower and lead these two guys, Joel Piper and Bob Bowen, to befriend me and share the gospel with me. And God lavishly welcomed me into his family as a son. And so a dad like that, if I understand his heart, that's a dad worth paying attention to. That's a dad worth obeying. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would burn these truths on our hearts. God, if there's anybody here who has not yet trusted in Jesus, who, who cannot call you Father, I pray that you will give him or her the courage to to consider the claims of Christ. Give that person faith to believe and become a, a true son or daughter of yours. And we pray, God, that together we would experience experience you as the heavenly father you are, not the heavenly father that we've assumed you are or the heavenly father we've these attributes we've projected on you. But we pray that we would Look at who you are through the word, and we would relate to you honestly, and we would relate to you in a, in a way that, that honors you. And so, God, we want to be obedient children. We want to address you as Father in a way that just delights our hearts. And so open our eyes, God. Show us everything we need to see. God, lead us in these ways. God, our time on earth, it's, it's tough, and uh, you know that because Jesus was one of us. You, you know it. And uh, so we ask you for the grace to live in exile well. Thank you that we're not alone. Thank you that we're not orphans in this life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.